Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to episode six of Second Self. This week's guest is author and literary agent, Catherine Cho. I should say before we begin that we had a couple of sound issues with this episode, which is unfortunate um, due to how we had to record it. However, it is one of the best, most interesting conversations I've ever had on the podcast or off. And so I encourage you to stick with it because this isn't the kind of conversation I think that you're going to hear anywhere else. Catherine's book is called Inferno, a memoir of motherhood and madness. And it is one of the most impactful books that I have read over the last three years. It's an incredible piece of writing. It's beautiful. It's uncomfortable. It is excoriatingly honest. And it is a frightening interrogation of complacency around the concept of sanity and the fragility of the divide between sanity and insanity as well as of the ways that we see people who are suffering with mental illness and the ways that we categorize our own mental health. It's also a conversation on the complexity of motherhood, new motherhood, the loss of self that can be attached to becoming a mother that is refreshing to say the least because these are not topics that women feel comfortable talking about because these are not topics that we are encouraged to talk about. Catherine is an incredibly unique person in that she articulates with total dignity and confidence the things that so many of us are afraid to say. And she has explored in Inferno and in this conversation the fragility of our hold upon reality and the confidence with which we feel entitled to make judgments of others and also of ourselves. This was one of the most interesting conversations I have ever had. And in part, that is because Catherine was so generous as to accommodate and encourage me in asking questions that in most contexts would be rude, would be weird, would be unaskable, and for most people unanswerable. But she didn't feel that way and as a result of that we were able to have a conversation which I will never forget and I hope that you will find it useful 
too. Hi again, Catherine. So yeah, thanks for doing this again. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you're busy and uh, that you had multiple family birthdays over the week. <laughs> um, so Inferno was a book that really, um, it really impacted me and it seemed to articulate something that uh, I think kind of swirls around in human consciousness and touched on a lot of fears that we all carry around, um, but don't really ever express to one another. Namely, I think the sort of uh, the fragility of the line between what we perceive as normality and what we perceive as the potential to lose connection with ourselves and, you know, the difference between what it is to be sane and what it is to be insane um, and whether those categories are even useful. Um, so I think it would be really useful to start if you could talk a little bit about the experience that led you to write the book. Yes. So when I went through psychosis, which was a very intense and kind of condensed experience, um, soon afterwards, I went through a really deep depression, a clinical depression. And actually, I think um, because there was nothing I really could do except lie in bed, um, I was physically immobile. I spent a lot of time just thinking. And I really wanted to think about psychosis in a way that didn't scare me. And I spent a lot of time just trying to trace what was real, what was not real. And initially, I was going to write an article about it. And then as I tried to write the article, I just realized that you couldn't really understand something like a mental breakdown without actually knowing what a person had been before, which is what led me to structure it as a book. I mean, yeah. And so once I made that decision to write it as a book, actually, the writing of it was, was very fast. Um, I wrote the first draft in maybe two months, I think. Wow. So when you were undergoing the process of writing the book, where, how, where were you mentally in relation to, you know, this enormous experience that, that you had just been through? How, how much distance did you have from it at that time? I don't think I actually had that much distance. It was still pretty fresh for me, but I think one kind of key, um, thing is that, I felt emotionally distanced enough from it. Like I wasn't trying to write it in a way to help me process trauma. Um, I think that would have been a kind of a, like an unfair expectation of writing a book. Um, it was really about communicating it, but because I think it happened so recently, it was very fresh in my mind. Hmm. One of the things that I found really interesting about how you wrote the book. So obviously, um, for anybody listening who hasn't read it, you should read it firstly, but um, it, it sort of, it juxtaposes an experience that you had of postpartum psychosis and a, over a kind of a two week period of particular intensity where you were hospitalized. And it juxtaposes that with experiences throughout your life that you kind of, um, you, you lay out uh, in relationship to it as I suppose relevant but not necessarily causal factors so one of the kind of I think one one of the things I found really interesting about that is that when people have very intense experiences there is a retroactive temptation to build a narrative and a chronology that that justifies them and makes them explicable and comprehensible and you didn't do that you sort of you gave the context of who you are and who you were in the lead up to this experience and you just sort of let it sit there. Um, mm -hmm. What was your thinking around doing that, that avoiding that 
urge to make yeah. things comfortably, you know, neaten them up and, and put a puzzle together? I think, well, I think because, you know, so much of like a mental experience, it's not an easy cause and effect. Um, and I, well, I didn't think it was the most accurate way of depicting what had happened. Also, I think I wanted to leave space for the reader to kind of make their own conclusions. Um, and maybe they will see the connections and patterns that I definitely saw. But I didn't want to just kind of lay it out. And, you know, this happened to me. So that's why in my psychosis, I felt this. Um, just because I think, you know, also, I wanted to immerse the reader in that experience. And I think part of that immersion means having that space to to make those connections. Hmm. So the the way that you sort of um, experienced psychosis was, I mean, I suppose it is incredibly unique for everybody who has an experience like that. And for most people who don't undergo an experience of that intensity, I think everyone, I think, has a at least some experience in their life of coming to the realization that reality is quite brittle and that our mm. comfort within it is not a given um, and can be sort of removed from us at any one time. But obviously your experience was all the ambiguity of that truth was removed and you were immersed in this otherness that is very frightening in how you write about it. So can you talk a little bit about sort of what that alternative reality presented itself as for you in particular? Yes. I mean, yeah, for me in particular, you know, it's interesting that you say about how reality being brittle, because I think I never really thought of reality in that way. Maybe because I had always, maybe because I sensed it, but then I never really thought about it because it really, it truly scared me, the idea of like, what is real? What is perception? So I felt very sheltered until the psychosis when it was really just kind of blown apart. Um, for me in particular, psychosis, it had a storyline. It was maybe because I work with books, because I work with stories. It was like every certain kind of memory of a phrase, of um, scenes from films, from books, from mythology, um, from experience of my own life kind of came together. Um, and it just all kind of connected in my, in my brain. And um, something that apparently I often said a lot in my psychosis was, this is bad storytelling or, you know, that kind of like I was commenting on the psychosis as I was processing it. Um, yeah. So for me that, that it was a lot about a lot of sci-fi, a lot of fantasy, you know, like I used to really love Battlestar Galactica that showed up a lot, kind of this belief in Cylons and, and things like that. That is such a um, dark show as well. It's a really dark show. <laughs> I yeah. know. I, actually, I mean, that's such an interesting one because it's, um, I mean, I, I made my way through the entirety of Game of Thrones, despite its darkness and Battlestar Galactica. I even I checked out on, even though I, I am a big sci-fi <laughs> fan, because I found that it kind of I would go away from episodes of it, finding that it darkened my day and made yeah. me feel grim. And um, so how interesting that that sort of utterly dystopian and, and um, dark construction found its way into this experience that you were having. Yeah, it, it really did. I mean, I get, and it was also, it was, it was a show I'd seen so long ago. I guess I hadn't realized how much of an impact it had had. Um, and then other things that kind of, you know, the tropes of like the mad woman locked up in a, like in a ward, like um, that, that really showed up as well. Like Fingersmith, which I really loved where, you know, there's a scene where they're carted away to the side, like that definitely showed up where I thought I was one of those women that you hear about that's been locked away. And yeah, it was, 
I don't, you know, from talking with other women um, or actually men too, like anyone who's gone through psychosis, it's interesting how much there are many parallels, like God features a lot, religion features a lot. This idea of being the chosen one is a very common theme, which was in my psychosis as well. But I think definitely kind of the focus on narrative was kind of tailored for me. <laughs> and um, yeah, and religion, I, I didn't even mention that part, which was a huge factor. Um, you know, the reason I called the book Inferno was because I thought I was in Dante's Inferno. Um, and so much of my upbringing was a religious upbringing. And that kind of all, you know, came together in, in what I was experiencing, where I, I truly believed I was in hell and being punished in like this computer simulation version of hell. Yeah, I mean, you you write about it as well in a way that is so immersive um, that it's really terrifying. And I think you do manage to convey a sense to someone who does take reality for granted or their perception of it um, in a way that sort of shows them, as you say, I, I don't know, I suppose this kind of, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's a bit obviously deliberately like Dante's Inferno where you sort of lead people down and down and it's uh it's just a really um insightful window into what the mind can do to itself um when it sort of decides to show you that it, it's not necessarily the entirety of who you are or that it can it can um have a second life and then reveal that to you suddenly but it, it, it's very interesting how the sort of connection between that experience and your son, who is obviously three months old when this experience happened. So uh, because obviously so women don't look at the prospect of having their first child and include this possibility. So retroactively, when you look back on it now, as opposed to the experience when you were having it, how does it relate to your perspective on motherhood? And, and that time with your with your firstborn child, your son. Yeah, it's true. I, you know, there were so many things that I kind of prepared for with birth and becoming a parent. Um, and to be honest, most of it was just physical. Like I was so kind of obsessed with this idea of going through birth, like birth experience, um, what might happen to my body. And I, it really genuinely never occurred to me to think about sanity <laughs> or um, that I would lose my sense of self. Um, and actually, I think retroactively, it seems almost obvious that by giving birth to a child, your identity does shift in a really fundamental way that I think perhaps is not really talked about. It's because it's considered, I suppose, taboo to say this is a loss of self by becoming a mother, but it genuinely is because suddenly you as an individual ceases to exist. You can say it's amplified or it's changed or transformed, I suppose, or it's added on. But but in a way, fundamentally, who you are, you, it doesn't exist anymore. It's you plus something else. And what I think often you realize, especially in those very early months, is that it's you in relation to this other human being um, that you have to take care of, that you have responsibility for, um, to feed, you know, to keep alive, really. And I think that and it's interesting because when does that change happen? Like perhaps it happens a bit when you're pregnant and you have to worry about what you're eating, you know, you have to think about those kind of things. But for me, I, I really didn't feel the weight of that until really after birth. And 
you know, being faced with this stranger, you know, my son and being like, okay, this is my son. <laughs> he was inside <laughs> my body for a really long time. And oh my goodness, like now I'm the one who has to, to take care of him. And like, that was a shock. And you're also, it's such a physical experience that I don't think you have the time to process it. It's probably something that, you know, you need some time like on your own to just think about and process and you don't have the benefit of that. And so it, it sounds really naive, but I, I genuinely didn't consider that until I went through the experience. I mean, why would you though? Because it's it's not the standard experience and, and it does seem to be such a physically imminent process and this constant sort of um, presence within your body that why would you consider the idea that it could start this process of sort of unraveling on a much deeper level than a physical one? I'm I'm curious though about that sense of how the experience changed your faith in your own perception as it were because I remember sort of studying philosophy and being um I don't know about 18 and being quite naive uh and realizing you know in a lecture or you have your blown your mind blown by some idea that's quite obvious but you never thought of it before because you're young mm-hmm. so we were talking about I think George Barclay and the seminar tutor was essentially pointing out that, you know, when you run your hand over the bark uh, of a tree, you're not actually really learning very much about the tree. You're learning a lot more about your own hand. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's true, I guess, of every human experience that we we interact with our reality as we sense and perceive it in this way that uh, has this quite arrogant presumption that the way that we see and perceive the world is an objective one as opposed to just mediated through our you know limited human perception um so when you go through an experience like that where all of your sort of modes of perception are altered deconstructed and then radically reconstructed in a way that you don't recognize what is that experience like and how does it change the way you feel about the world now that you are kind of back in reality as it were but you have the sense that there is there is another way to live um yeah that you didn't know about before i see it almost as being able to perceive another dimension i suppose i think what the experience really taught me is how much our brain it you know the process of perceiving as you say it's not objective and i think often you think of it as objective just because that's how our brain is you know you just think that's that's the way the world is around us, but how much actually the way we perceive how much time has passed, et cetera, everything, the way we see faces, it's actually your brain um, filling in a lot of gaps for you. I found that, you know, when I was going through it, it was, it was genuinely terrifying, I think. And like to question whether something in your experience is actually real, it really makes you kind of feel unmoored from life itself, like everything just kind of, yeah. And I think, um, especially in the months afterward when I was recovering and just like little things where I would think I, you know, somebody I saw perhaps their face looked a little bit off to me, or perhaps there was a face of somebody I met in the ward, but couldn't be, you know, um, it, it really makes you question. And then also makes you question your memory as well, because there are things that I will say happened at that time that my husband says, you know, no, it, it didn't happen that way. Um, but you really believe it. And so to question that, I think it is frightening. Um, but I think, you know, it's really tempting to kind of just ignore it and just, I guess, go back into a cocoon of being like, this is what I perceive and this is real. But I think, 
I continually try to challenge myself. I mean, that's probably the wrong word, but you know, to, to question and to think, and it's partly why I think so much about what's happened then and kind of, if there is a moment now, which doesn't happen very often, but you know, occasionally I'll be in the supermarket and be like, gosh, this feels like it's been a really long time. Like, has this been decades, <laughs> you know, something like that, um, which happened a lot actually in the months of recovery. I would really freak out my husband because I'd be like, I feel like we've been here for a really long time. <laughs> um, he'd be like, oh my goodness, like, is this recurring? But anyway, um, I think, yeah, it just, it makes me feel a lot more gratitude, I think, for myself and kind of also maybe it's humbling because I feel a lot less reliant on myself. And then also, I think it gave me a greater sense of empathy where you realize something that you perceive isn't what someone else perceives. And that I never really fully, I think, understood until that experience, how much something that's my perspective is my own, really. When you say that you're less reliant on yourself, what do you mean by that? I think because I used to be quite an obstinate person where, you know, I was probably a bit black and white in things. This is the way this happened. And I guess I considered it my principles. But now I think I feel that assumption that what I've thought, what I've perceived is actually accurate. I, I tend to not be as obstinate or stubborn about that. Hmm. Do you think um, kind of being confronted with the level of sort of darkness within yourself that maybe, you know, it might not even have been obvious before that experience was even there. Does it make you more forgiving of other people, more empathetic to people who can be difficult to relate to or who can seem, I don't know, weird or frightening or, you know, some other negative descriptor? Definitely. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are going through mental illness. I think a lot of times before like if I saw somebody on the street who is obviously mentally unwell you'd kind of want to steer clear of them and you feel a bit you know you feel afraid I mean of course still you know I feel a bit of caution but I feel a lot of sadness at the same time and I feel I know how lonely and how isolating that experience is and I know how much even the people closest to you in the act of going through something like that often are afraid of you and and that's that's really you know that's really sad I think Hmm. It, it occurred to me while I was looking back through the book before we had a chat, um, I was thinking about Michel Foucault, who kind of categorized insanity, as it were, as a political categorization. And I think there's a lot of kind of logic and evidence to that in terms of psychiatric diagnostic um, criteria through history, invariably, they diagnose as insane anything which is sort of outside conformity and the status quo you know in that period in history so mm -hmm. to be homosexual at a certain point was to be insane or sometimes to do things that don't make much logical sense within the context of our own society like arguably to want to give away all your wealth if you're very rich is insane so I think the mental state that you take the reader through in the book is of such an extremity, the kind of psychosis that you talk about, it can't really pass in the world as being a normal mental state, a normal as in recognizable standard or whatever, because you're clearly living in a, in a reality outside the physical one in which you find yourself. But what do you think of that idea that to be insane um, is a very wide and very vague class of categorization and that we tend to throw people into that 
bracket um, sometimes because they're inconvenient or they're politically in the wrong place or they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I, that's really interesting. I mean, I, you know, after this, I'll definitely have to read up on it because I never really considered that aspect of the experience, but I think that's true. I think often being insane as we consider it just means that those kind of self-imposed or societal barriers or norms are removed. And that's frightening. You know, like I definitely, the people I met who were in treatment with me, you know, I mean, what does that mean that they're insane? It could mean that, you know, what they say is not filtered at all. Actually, you remove filters because your brain, I think, is kind of released from that. Um, And definitely for me, I can say definitely probably in every sense of the world, I was insane because I really, as you say, was removed from the physical realm of what I was experiencing. But also it's frightening that level of clarity in terms of all the connections I was able to see, all the kind of truth I was able to feel. But perhaps in separating people as sane and insane, we're kind of ignoring that and that kind of potential for what that means. Mm. In some ways, I think that historically, it definitely has been a way of dealing with people who are difficult, you know, like heretics when the church was sort of um, had total hegemony over Europe. You you were insane if you thought that a piece of bread wasn't, you know, the body of Christ or whatever. So obviously the categorization has got sort of broader, but in general, a lot of the time, I think that we dismiss as sort of outside of sanity, um, people who simply don't respond to the incentives that make sense to most of us or by which most of us operate. But mm-hmm. then obviously, as you say, there there is a level at which it becomes really obvious that a person is not, not just that they're not interpreting the same sort of sensory information in the same way as other people, but that they're privy to different sensory information, that they're experiencing something that nobody else can see or feel. Um, yeah. And then obviously those people are in danger physically and and, and in other ways and, and definitely need assistance. Um, but it's just interesting to think about, I, I suppose as someone with like a background of much milder mental health issues than the ones that you talk about, I've certainly never experienced anything as frightening or or revelatory as, as what you write about in the book. It is interesting to think about the the vagueness of the categories and the sometimes the lack of scientific rigor with which diagnoses are made, um, especially on the milder end of the scale. Um, Definitely, yeah. But what what you talked about, I think, about the clarity and the sense of truth in the middle, kind of at the eye of this uh, chaos um, in which you found yourself, is really interesting because there's such a stark contrast between the sense of power that, that you write about feeling, a kind of a sense of, being a conduit for this very important information that wasn't recognizable to other people and having this experience that was sort of marking you out as unique and then a sense that your actual power, your your liberty and your freedom was taken away from you by other people at, at this time um, for reasons, you know, which were about keeping you safe um, and, and for reasons that, which didn't make sense to you at the time. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of how did how did you feel and how do you feel now about that that contrast that sense of power and powerlessness simultaneously? That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, that sense of the power and clarity that I felt—I guess that would be considered mania technically. 
it was so exhilarating. I remember just distinctly looking in the mirror and I physically saw myself change. Like I looked different. I looked powerful. I looked celestial almost. And yeah, that, that feeling was just addictive. It was exhilarating. I, I just was like, this is incredible. Um, and then of course, kind of very quickly, probably within the same hour spiraled into like uh, despair and fear. But as you say, the powerlessness it's interesting because often when I speak to women who've been through this postpartum psychosis, this is the part that they find that they really struggle with, which is, you know, it is dehumanizing, to be honest, right, to be kind of stripped down, to be held down, to be physically restrained, um, to be showered against your will. Um, and maybe for me, I'm not saying that it wasn't difficult, but for me, it's something that I kind of immediately accepted as part of the experience. I think because I never doubted in myself that I, you know, am a person or my personhood, but I could see that the people around me who are trying to take care of me and often um, like the medical professionals, it was purely out of goodwill. But at the same time, I think in order for them to do what they had to do, they couldn't see me as, you know, Catherine, a woman, a mother. They saw me as a patient, right? A patient who's unwell, who needs to be physically restrained, like her clothes will be taken off. And, you know, that that sense of, as you say, it was powerless because when I was sectioned, I really had no idea when I would leave. I didn't know how long I was going to stay. It's it's really frightening. And I think initially when I was really unwell, I thought I would be there for eternity. I thought that was my kind of fate, um, which I think was a big part of the experience that frightened me the most, which was this idea that for the rest of eternity, I was going to be kind of condemned to be restrained in this place yeah it must give you um in some ways a an incredible insight into something that as you say most people turn their faces from and are frightened of so for example we all recognize you know the homeless person outside the train station and we have all looked in the other direction um and and sort of in that moment made a, a conscious or unconscious decision to deny the, you know, unique individual humanity of that human being sitting there in a situation that they're in. And I think that experience is shared by people with extreme, you know, mental health conditions. So what is it like to go from being, you know, what is seen as a respectable middle class person with a profession and, you know, people who ask you your opinion on things and mm -hmm. people who have professional meetings and, and have you along and, you know, you're you're always such a a beautifully groomed and sort of dignified person whenever I speak with you <laughs> to then be seen as this person whose humanity is kind of in question to be the person who is looked away from. What is that like? It's really, I mean, well, first you realize kind of, I mean, the word privilege is such a loaded word now, but you definitely, at least for me, I felt that, you know, I, um, you know, even in the way I was treated, you know, I'm a, a small physically not threatening person. Um, but even then I was quite violent in my psychosis. And I think the way I was treated, it wasn't with fear um, that maybe I would have had if I was like a very like physically imposing person, but smaller Asian woman, like, you know, <clears throat> I was still treated roughly, but probably not as roughly as I would have been. Um, I think people could tell that, you know, by the way I was speaking or perhaps, I guess just the way I carried myself that they knew I wasn't as you say, somebody who was homeless or perhaps somebody with drug problems, you know, they kind of could tell that 
I had a certain background. And people, I think this is the other funny thing is, even in a place like a psychiatric unit, the brain kind of makes assumptions. Like you see somebody and you say, I think I kind of know their story. And people, I think, assumed that they knew mine as well. Although I think part of the things that I've mentioned in the book that was kind of humorous is that everybody wasn't really sure why I was there. <laughs> it wasn't a clear role. You know, I wasn't from drug addiction. Like people could kind of tell I had a kid. So people were constantly trying to figure out like who I was. But yeah, I think, you know, it's very humbling. And I think for me, it's almost an equalizer, right? Like you're in this place, everybody's unwell. And for me, it, it didn't matter that I had a job or that I'd went to university or, you know, I was just as unwell as everyone else, even more so. And, um, and in that way, I was very lucky that I had my husband to advocate for me because, because of him and his voice, which a lot of the other people in the ward did not have. I was allowed to have like a notebook. Like I was not caught in this kind of bureaucracy that I think for a lot of people, they wouldn't be able to navigate on their own. So, I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's, I think a troubling part of the experience when I look back on it is I just remember the visiting hours were at the middle of the day. It's like 3 PM or something like who can go on a weekday to, to visiting hours. And it was just me. And like, I think one or two other people who had visitors, nobody else ever had visitors. And it was because nobody could come, you know, and that's, or people couldn't come pick them up when they were allowed to be released from the, the, the hospital. So yeah, that is troubling. Hmm. It sounds like such a, I mean, traumatic as a word doesn't even cover it, but, but it, it has to have taken away any complacency that, that you could have had about the potential for you as an individual to end up in circumstances that you just never imagined you would find yourself in. You're surrounded by, as you say, people who have these sorts of, of issues and, and maybe come from backgrounds socioeconomically and whatever, which means that they, they don't have an advocate. They're serially undergoing, you know, stuck in a cycle of kind of, you know, psychosis and then borderline stability and back again, and maybe do spend eternity, relatively speaking, in the conditions that you describe on the ward. It must be humbling to just kind of realize that if you're a bit less lucky and you had a bit less help, that could be that could be you. It could be any of us. Um, yeah, definitely. I definitely think so. Yeah. And you see kind of how easily people fall into. I think when you go through mental illness, right, it's such an isolating experience that if you don't have people helping you, you can very easily fall by the wayside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as well, you, you describe really beautifully, I think, in the book in terms of what made you decide to be so excoriatingly honest about your experience? Because if you're not flattering yourself, you're not holding back, you're not sort of protecting yourself from revealing the rawness and, and the ugliness and the frightening nature of the experience. I think some people would be scared to be that honest. So why did you choose to be? It's interesting because I'm a I'm a really private person actually, <laughs> in my work life prior to this, uh, which I you know I, nobody really knew much. I mean I'm not the type of person who puts myself really out there. I think in the public, um, I'm quite reserved privately, etc. Um, but I, I think so much of the experience afterwards, I realize how much we hide of ourselves, and that's probably something that you know like it's kind of. When yourself is like blown apart in that way, when your your sense of reality is really blown apart, you're trying to put yourself back together. And when I was looking back on it, I just thought about, you know, so many of the things that I experienced were kind of talked about in hush hush 
terms. And I noticed it immediately, even like the first day or two when I came out of the ward, everyone was like, we'd had to cancel this big party for my son. And everyone was like, we just said you were like really tired, you know, really exhausted. And like, I felt it was a very upsetting because how are you ever meant to understand or have conversations about this if this is something that's so hidden away? And I, as much as people didn't want me to feel bad about what I was going through, I think by putting that kind of language, it creates this idea that you should be ashamed, like the sense of shame. Mm -hmm. And I think so much, especially with motherhood, is that guilt and shame is kind of comes with it somehow for whatever reason we inherit it. I really just didn't want that to be the case. And I think by kind of being like, this is what happened. And as you say, I tried to be as honest as possible and reveal, you know, the truth of the situation, the truth who I was, I kind of wanted to show to everyone else or to anyone reading that these aren't the sides of yourself that you have to hide. You know, there's nothing that's shameful about it. And I think one thing that's been so kind of rewarding about publishing the book is that so many people have come up to me or reach out to me to say that they've gone through some variation, obviously not to the extent of psychosis, but you know, those feelings of shame or fear or uncertainty, it's, they're really universal. And I think in order to understand it, we have to be open about it. Mm. I mean, obviously that experience is uh, as well of mental health issues and psychosis after the birth of your son is such a high stakes time to, to experience something like that. Most people who undergo psychosis and, and depression and other issues, regardless of their circumstances, which can obviously vary, if they don't have a, a tiny newborn person who is entirely reliant on them for their existence, it makes it a bit easier, even if it's an incredibly <laughs> hard experience. Yeah. So how does that influence your view of yourself as, as a parent and, and your bond with your son and kind of how you see him and, and feel about him now? Yeah, well, now it's been, now he's four. Um, so, you know, and I, I think I would say it probably took me a year fully to kind of recover, to come off all the medication. Um, after the experience, I really felt like the bond that I had with my son was really completely severed. Um, and I think, you know, it was really difficult. Like I physically couldn't touch him for a really long time. I felt a lot of guilt about it, but also I felt just so cold. I think that was the other part of it is that it wasn't, I didn't have the capacity or the capability to even be a, a mother, whatever that mm. word means. And I think I really worked hard for it. Um, and maybe some people would, you know, would kind of think that that's something to be a little bit embarrassed by to say that you had to work to be a parent, but I kind of hope that, you know, when I do have to talk about this with my son, that he will see it as a testament and, you know, perhaps like a different type of love, not like the kind of natural love that kind of overspring's, you know, that people talk about just happening, but something I really had to build and put effort into because I really wanted to have that bond with him and to be a parent for him. And so now, you know, we have a really great bond and it feels very natural. And my daughter's the same age as when we were going through the times when she was three months old. I definitely felt a lot of sadness thinking about the fact that I'd left my son when he was that way and that I missed, you know, so much emotionally towards that time. Um, but I think overall, it just makes me feel really grateful that we are able to have what we have now. Mm. 
I understand what you mean about potential judgment because it seems like mothers are so exposed to judgment regardless of what they do. But it sounds there is kind of something intensely beautiful about making a conscious decision to kind of find your way back to somebody, I think, and, and sort of work to establish a love with them that you feel they deserve and that you want to have. There's something kind of very pure about that as opposed to um, the also very desirable and but easier version, which is that you just are flooded with it without any sort of any meta narrative or anything else. Um, (laughs) You talked about your daughter and I I was really intensely curious and I hope it's not rude, but I I can't imagine. (laughs) Sorry for the invasive question, but I feel like why did you choose to have a second baby and in the choice to do that and, and the experience of sort of waiting for her to arrive, what were you thinking about and how were you feeling? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a really good question and a, and a fair one, definitely. I mean, it's, um, it's funny because when I was promoting the book, I had just found out I was pregnant and it was a question a lot of people asked me, which is, would you ever have a dare to have a second? <laughs> and I couldn't be like, well, actually, um, no, but it is a big decision to make, and it's not something that we took in a cavalier way. Um, the statistics are not particularly favorable. I mean, it's 50% chance of recurrence with a second baby. Um, and for my husband, he very clearly was like, okay, that's that's not good. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. Um, I think for me, maybe because I had such a really strong relationship with my brother growing up, I always wanted, if we could have two children, I always wanted to have two. And, you know when I was talking about it with my husband, James, I was kind of saying like, even if I knew I would go through psychosis again, I would still make the decision to have a second. Whereas he disagreed, actually. He said, if I knew mm-hmm. you were going to have psychosis again, I wouldn't. Um, so, I mean, we fundamentally disagreed on that. But I suppose, I think because I'd spent so much time thinking about why I had what I, you know, went through what I went through, I felt pretty... I hate to use the word confident, but like secure in myself. I felt secure in being able to know why my sense of reality was so threatened, why my sense of self was so threatened um, when I had my son. And I thought I could avoid those things with my daughter. I think the first month of pregnancy, the first lockdown happened. (laughs) And then we were like, wow, maybe this is not a great time. (laughs) Um, we probably, you know, we were kind of like, oh, this is not great with a global pandemic. And, you know, really my heart goes out to anyone who's going through mental illness during this time, because gosh, like, I just can't imagine. But because of that, I had a lot of time on my own. We were removed from any friends, removed from family. And also I wasn't going into work. So I was home and I really kind of got to have the pregnancy to myself, which I think was a benefit for me at least. And so... I just spent a lot of time thinking, trying to mentally prepare and like also thinking back to what I'd gone through with my first pregnancy and just trying to feel like mentally equipped. So that's that's what I did. Whereas my husband kind of did all the practical roots of like packing the bags and like getting the prescriptions ready and (laughs) kind of like a Boy Scout. Like he was really prepared (laughs) for that. He had like emergency numbers, like, you know, which I personally found kind of infuriating because I was like, it's like you're assuming this disaster is going to happen. But I also understood why he had to do it his way. So we prepared for it in different ways. And then I guess I should definitely say that with the NHS, I was immediately referred to like a perinatal team and a specialist who actually, she was my psychiatrist 
the first time around. So she knew my story already, um, which was hugely helpful. And we were able to discuss like plans. And I think actually that sense of security and preparedness really puts you mentally in a, in a positive state. Hmm. And also because I had psychosis later on, I didn't need to be on antipsychotics beforehand, which I think a lot of women are usually used as a prophylactic just to make sure. And I, I wasn't against it, but also I was thinking, you know, if we could avoid it, then that would be great. So I didn't have to have any medication. So yeah, I've been really lucky this time around, but also a lot of preparedness and preparation went into it, I think. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things that are so interesting though about what you just said, but I think the the primary one is that you seem um, incredibly robust in how you talk about it. Like this experience that was essentially a, a non-consensual deconstruction of you and everything that you took for granted and and the way that you write about it is so beautiful and even in its horribleness sometimes it's so beautiful because I don't think it's possible for any writer no matter how gifted to bring us fully into that alternative universe you write about it in this kind of wonderfully lateral way where you just sort of nudge us at it you gesture us towards it constantly um it, with this kind of symbolic and 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 rich language that you know you can almost smell the monster's breath in the way that you talk about it in the book um so I finished the book I think with what what you probably intended was this sense of that I got as close as I might to your experience without experiencing it and the idea that you would come away from that with the bravery to even consider that anything is worth going back in there um and the kind of the love for a child who you hadn't met yet that she was worth risking that for. Um, and the sense that you found some control in this, that if you, you know, if you are sufficiently introspective and you plan enough and you are brutally honest with yourself about your own potentiality and your own mind and your own body, that you'll be okay in the end. That's incredibly inspiring to hear. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that was really moving. Oh no, thanks. Um, yeah, gosh. <laughs> Where did that come from? How did you retrieve that from the kind of the wreckage of that experience? I think for me, um, and this is something I talked a lot about with uh, James, um, because our conclusions were so different. I think for me, it was the knowledge that, you know, as frightening and as terrifying that experience was, it was temporary. And I think one thing that I feel, you know, very lucky about, if you think about different experiences, like there are so many terrible experiences that people go through. Ours was very, it was, it, yes, it was really a test, but also it was temporary. And that's kind of what I kept saying to James was that, you know, we're still ourselves, you know, yes, we went through this and we are changed by it, but also I'm still myself. And I think that in itself was a kind of comfort, I suppose. Yeah, I think the idea of another child and another person um, and kind of being able to, like the sibling relationship, just I think because I had such a positive one, that in itself for me was enough. And I think, um, you know, perhaps that conviction meant that I didn't feel as much fear about that. Do you think it sort of changed your fear gauge in general? 
the only experience I can relate to that gave me any sense of sort of heightened fearlessness was after my mother died. There was a period of a few months where I was just like, all of this is bullshit, you know, like my electricity bill, whatever this person calling me wants, all of the requirements that I have, I I, I still am going to meet them, but I'm not going to worry about them because yeah. it's not important. There are way more important things. We could all die tomorrow. I'm not stressing out about, you know, this deadline or 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 this friend who wants me to call them back soon or whatever. Um, I make it sound like I think I was being negligent about my life. I wasn't. I was just... <laughs> I was I was not getting anxious about small things. Um, yeah. Do you think that this experience has given you a sort of an altered sense of what is important and what is deserving of your time and your mental energy? Or do you slip back into reality in the way that sort of post grief people tend to? Yeah, I, I, you know, I waver back and forth. I think there are times definitely where that kind of minutia um, of stuff, especially when I I remember I went back to work pretty early on after the experience and I hadn't told anybody about what I'd gone through. And so you get so stuck into that kind of the de the details, as you say, the bills, life admin. And like for me, maybe also because I was on medication, I just, I really felt nothing <laughs> about those things. Like I just didn't feel anything about it. And I think when you see kind of that also the stakes of what is going on in life, you know, which I think a lot of people experience when they go through grief or trauma, you know, I, I just couldn't remove that from my mind. Like, I was just thinking, like, as we're doing this, there are people that, you know, I just saw however many months ago in New Jersey in this ward, and they're really fighting for, for their lives. Or in the hospital, like, you know, that we just kind of don't see, that kind of half world that we just kind of, that there are people experiencing the worst moments at the same time, you know? And I think maybe having experienced that, you kind of have a better appreciation for it. Um, that being said, of course, now, several years later, I definitely feel myself <laughs> falling back into the mundane things. But I do think my mental energy in terms of, in terms of the things that probably in the past would have, I would have really lingered over. Yeah, I, I don't have that as much. Has it, um, has it changed the sort of circle of people around you? Because I imagine... An experience like that, um, people on your periphery, family and friends, they would cope with that in different ways. And there are always going to be the people who are just like, I don't know what to do, so I'm gone and I'll see you if and when you get better. Has has the kind of the social landscape of your life changed as a result of this? With my family, you know, definitely, I think it really altered that. I know it did alter them. You know, they they really still struggle with it perhaps but kind of in characteristic form they don't they don't really talk about it <laughs> uh we don't really talk about it um with friends maybe and this might be my fault is that we didn't really perhaps in being so private I did tell people what I'd gone through but I didn't perhaps go in depth so people knew mm -hmm. I'd had a hard time people knew you know I was in a psychiatric unit but nobody really knew the level of it, I think, until they read the book um, or until the book came out. And then I got a lot of my friends being like, oh, my gosh, like I had no idea. And I think also with the depression, like, as you say, a lot of people don't know how to help somebody, which I, I fully understand because I, I know I don't know how to help people. But occasionally there were people who my friends who maybe we weren't the closest, but they're the ones who really gave me what I really needed. Like I had a friend who... I mean, we were close, but not that close, but she, she would check on me every day and 
we would do like a gratitude exercise every day. And this is when I like could barely like function, open my eyes. And it really helped me. And I think, I don't know how she knew that I would need that. Um, and then maybe it was something that I, I don't know. I think she told me later that someone in her family had been through depression, which is how she kind of knew. Um, so yeah, in that way it strengthened things. But I think with other things, our social landscape is, is kind of the same. And I think perhaps we kept it, so kind of close to us that we didn't really share the extent of what it was. Mm. I mean, I suppose in some ways, even contemplating, beginning to think about where you would start to share, it almost does seem easier to, to write a book because it's... <laughs> yeah, like, there you go. <laughs> it's such a long, complex story. I imagine the kind of the sense of emotional weight when you would think about where to start with telling someone you care about and, and the the exhausting tirade of questions you would get that would probably keep you there for about six hours while you tried <laughs> to explain. Um, yeah. yeah, it's like keeping copies of the book in your handbag might just be easier. Well, I think also like my tendency was to joke about it, which would really annoy James because I'd be like, oh yeah, I was like in the ward and it was so, you know, I had my own like clique people and James would just be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like this is not funny. Um you know, and also like a lot of my friends didn't know that I'd had, I wrote in the book about a violent boyfriend that I had. A lot of people didn't actually know that I had one. So that was kind of news to them. So yeah, I mean, you kind of realize how much of yourself that you maybe perhaps keep to yourself that you don't necessarily share with people. So yeah. Hmm. I mean, you, I know that you, you said that when you were writing the book, it wasn't a form of trauma processing, which I think in some ways is probably why you managed to curate the emotional experience of the reader as they read it in such a, a controlled and nuanced way. You know, it, I, I kind of feel like reading the book that uh, as a writer, you're sort of there holding the reader's hand through it. So you never really quite fully let go of them and, and the reader never really feels like they're lost in it. Mm -hmm. But was the process of writing it in any way cathartic? Because as you say, it does seem like a moment of schism in your life that you're this quite reserved, quiet person who doesn't really broadcast details. And then suddenly you kind of let loose with this chaotic landscape of, of your life, this event, obviously this cataclysmic event, but also, as you mentioned, that relationship and other details and some stuff about your childhood that you write as well that kind of reveals a some chaos in your life that you had been, I don't know, protecting before that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. I, I think in the writing of the psychosis sections, it definitely felt a bit cathartic. I think there's like a joy that you can find in language. Like when you can find the phrase that you really feel like, oh gosh, like that's, you know, and like certain patterns that I found in writing about it that maybe it's clearer when you're putting stuff together in a narrative like you see like a motif come again that I could tell that that was meaningful to me so that made gave me an insight into something I didn't have before but as you say otherwise I I really wanted a sense of control like I wanted control in the narrative I didn't want to kind of just let loose for the reader I had been keeping journals throughout and that probably was an emotion I felt when I was writing journals but in the actual book itself um, I think I felt a lot of distance while writing it. Do you, having looked back on those journals, do you still feel like you recognize the Catherine who wrote them? I do. I mean, 
there it's there are some journals where I'm writing where I'm definitely just not well. <laughs> it's just like, gosh, this makes no sense. And but I recognize the kind of fear in them, and also I recognize. I wrote a lot of journals during the depression time, which was a really dark time for me. And I really see myself struggling, and so I recognize myself in that. But also, it's hard to remember that feeling of struggle that I had at the time when I'm like. I think sometimes my journal is like I tried to make a cup of tea today, which I really can't understand that.、Um, I don't remember that, but I recognize also kind of how hard I was trying to kind of put myself back together at that time. Mm. It's、uh, you mentioned memory earlier, and it kind of struck me how interesting that is. That、uh, obviously memory is always all all human memory is kind of crap because it's mediated by whatever is happening now and whatever has happened since. But in a sense, it it kind of is the best portal that you've got to that alternative reality. Both the one of you know being a person in the midst of a depression who lives in this world in which hope is simply not even conceptually in existence, and then. the the world of psychosis where you are Dante, what do you kind of carry forward from that experience? I think is probably a good a good place to to stop on that. You kind of still do have a tiny a tiny little portal into that alternative reality. How does it influence your your mundane everydayness now? I think you know overall the kind of feeling I have is anytime I feel maybe. Like a sense of despair or perhaps existential crises that you know strike all of us. I just go back to that memory, that feeling of really just only being the raw self, and I, I kind of see like all the things, like the the people around me or the memories I had, and the kind of I try to take some kind of solace in that and joy in that if I can, and. As I said before, with the empathy, it makes me realize how much of this kind of greater shared, you know, my kind of vision or experience of the world now, I think, is much more of a a greater shared one. When before, it was probably much more concentrated in just myself. So yeah, I try to think about about it as like a beautiful thing, I suppose. That's that's um that's such an interesting and and kind of enlightening. Perspective to have on something that you know, if you were a different person with a different outlook, you could look back on as a you know a great injustice arbitrarily inflicted upon you by a malevolent universe. But it seems a lot more constructive to think of it the way you do. And、uh, yeah, it, it's definitely made you、um, an incredibly interesting person who makes very interesting art. So、oh, thanks, thank you, and thanks so much for the the really. The wonderful words about the book that really means so much.、Um, I really admire your stuff, so it means a lot that you really liked it. So thank you, <laughs> thank you, thanks. No, it was it's truly a, as someone who kind of has brushed up against a lot of psychosis in my wider family and experienced, you know, some some murmurs of it that made me fear for my own sense of reality in my youth. It it was the most comfortingly、um, honest and familiar. Recounting of it that I've ever read. It, it wasn't romanticized,、um, and it wasn't hopeless. It was just sort of presenting possibilities,、um, and then、uh, giving a sense of them as, as you say, something that you can emerge from. And I think, especially in my younger years, I felt a bit like、uh, mental health issues were something that you were given, and then left to sort of crumble underneath,、um, which isn't the case.
if as you say if, if you have people to help you and you you know are honest with yourself yeah no thank you so much laura that means a really great deal thank you thanks i really appreciate you taking the time to do this thanks so much Catherine. no worries bye bye thanks for listening to second self this podcast was edited by billy adamson and jj hadari music was written by team hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.